the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. What's the future of downtowns after the pandemic? If you go to downtown Detroit these days, there's no question you can notice a difference in activity and density, especially during daylight hours. But what would it be like if we converted some parts of downtown to mixed use areas with more residential development and the things that people want in their neighborhoods? Today, we're gonna to talk about the possibility of transforming downtowns in Detroit, Metro Detroit, and nationwide. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Michigan School of Psychology and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDE. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. We spend a lot of time on this show thinking about one question. How do we make our city, our region, and our state better? Better as a community. And a lot of that involves questions about things like affordable housing and economic activity. But one idea we're pretty familiar with in Detroit is specifically getting more attention nationally. It's the concept of mixed-use development, which is a zoning strategy that combines different types of land uses, such as commercial, residential, and cultural, into a single neighborhood or district. One example that listeners of this show may be familiar with is the proposal for the new District Detroit, this $1.5 billion development led by Olympia Development and the Illich family, which is also seeking $800 million in development incentives. In theory, at least, mixed-use development could create more vibrant and walkable communities that offer a range of amenities and services within easy reach. As remote work becomes more common, Proponents argue that this could lead to more economic activity in downtowns, and it could create a greater sense of community and social interaction. What's more, in cities like Detroit, mixed-use development might help increase occupancy in buildings that seem like they're emptying out right now. It would bring more people into the city. If you go downtown here in Detroit these days, I think it's really obvious the difference between now and before 2020, especially during the day. It's nowhere near as dense or richly alive as it was before. And for a lot of us, that, that's a real disappointment. I mean, we've waited a long time to revitalize our inner core here in Detroit. And before the pandemic started, it really seemed like we were just on the edge of creating that kind of constant density, daytime, nighttime, weekdays, weekends, that you see in other big cities. So there are real questions right now about, well, what do we do? Do we really fundamentally change the way we think about downtown Detroit? And of course, Detroit is not the only city thinking that way. Lots of places feel really differently now than they did before the pandemic. And planners and other city officials are thinking about, okay, what's next? Still, there's a reason that cities don't normally mix residential and commercial zoning. Some worry that this kind of development or increasing residential zoning in downtowns could actually make it harder for lower-income folks to afford housing in these areas. If you convert buildings, especially retrofitting older buildings, it's just not cheap. It's not easy. And this raises concerns about how to fund these projects and whether such ideas 
really help line the pocketbooks of rich developers instead of creating things like affordable housing. So what's the answer? Do cities like Detroit need to take a hard look at converting commercial districts into residential areas? Is mixed-use zoning a potential solution? And what's the best way to implement such a plan? How would you do that in an area of Detroit that for a hundred years or more has really been just about commerce and business? That's where we want to begin the conversation today. What should be next? What could be next for downtown Detroit and downtowns all over the country? And to help us answer these questions and more, we're now joined by Heather Long. She is a columnist who focuses on the economy with the Washington Post. She's also a member of that newspaper's editorial board, which recently released an article that urged downtowns across the country to convert offices into residential spaces. Heather, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. It's good to be here. These are super interesting issues to be discussing. They really are. Uh, so, so let's start here. Why has the Post come out in support of this kind of mixed-use development and increasing residential zoning in downtown areas? And I should make it clear, you're not just talking about uh, D.C. You are talking about nationally. You're saying this is the, the, the path forward for cities like Detroit and Cleveland and Denver. A lot of it is an economic reality. Uh, the Washington Post is located in downtown Washington, D.C. We're not that far from the White House. And we started noticing last fall, like many people did, that um, people were going back to vacations and restaurants and sporting venues, but they were not going back to the office. Uh, one of my colleagues came over from Europe and he said, Heather, it is comatose in Washington, D.C. <laughs> you know, it just there's no vibrancy anymore in this core downtown of the nation's capital. And it, it, I said, so we started looking at the data and there's been a lot of groups. Uh, we'd like to look at the Castle data. Castle is a group that handles security for a lot of major commercial buildings like law firms and tech firms. And so we said, okay, share some of our data. And what you see is there um, most cities across the country peaked in return to office in early January, early to mid-January. So just after the holidays, you see, I guess the bosses said, we need people <laughs> back in the office. <laughs> you know, But it's still really small, um, low. If you look at Chicago and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. and New York City, uh, they all peak around 50% back. So 50% of where we were three years ago. And you have to just realize this is the new reality. Yeah, a couple more people may come back, but it's just never going to be anywhere near what it used to be. And so you're sort of forced to change because A, the people aren't there, the vibrancy isn't there, but B, the tax dollars aren't there. Obviously, people aren't spending, but the value of those commercial buildings which for years was a huge cash cow. You know, somebody told me it's the golden goose <laughs> for city finances for so long is now gone. And what we're seeing across the country is buildings are being downgraded in their value, their taxes are going down, and that means less money for schools, for police, for mental health, for all these other, for affordable housing, as you were speaking about, all these other programs that we want to do. So I think this is... A scary moment that you have to adjust to this new reality and at a time when those revenues are falling, but it's also a once in a generation, maybe two generation opportunity to remake cities in America for the future. So let's talk about what that what that actually means. Uh, obviously, part of that is about changing zoning and the way we think about zoning in in cities and and especially in in downtowns, it means adding more residential. But I also suspect it means a more fundamental rethink. So so, and I'm going to use Detroit as an example. In the last 15 years here in Detroit, we have been undergoing a pretty significant transformation of our own downtown that was embracing 
residences over over commercial for for years decades really we've had a lot of commercial vacancy in 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 our downtown and in the late 2000s people started to say well look some of these buildings could be they could be apartments they could be communities that has been good and, and that has really changed the face of our downtown I and mean, a lot more people living in our downtown now than there were 15 or 20 years ago that hasn't of course been disrupted as much by the pandemic but but I suspect that behind what you're saying is even a more fundamental rethink, I guess, of of downtowns, not just adding residential units, but changing uh, other things, adding other things that people want in neighborhoods where they live that we don't have in downtown uh, schools, for instance, or uh, rec centers or parks or the other things that all of us want nearby to where we're laying our head every night. Yeah, you are exactly right. And one of the reasons I was eager to speak with you is because uh, Detroit and Philadelphia are actually come up a lot in conversations with developers and with architects and Mm -hmm. with urban planners because of just what you're saying. In some ways, cities like Detroit were forced to think, have this big think so many more years earlier and everyone else is playing catch up a bit at the moment. Um, I think you're right. So there's like a basic reality if you take a city like downtown Washington, D.C. is over 90 percent commercial right now. And that's obviously not sustainable in the future, Mm -hmm. the new reality that we're in. Certainly um, during the pandemic situation and coming out of it, what most people who work on urban development have, have told me is, the best and most striving areas are, are going to be more of a 24-7. That doesn't mean everybody's partying at 3 a.m., but basically <laughs> this notion that people are there around the clock because they're either living there or working there or going for entertainment or recreation. And so something a little bit more closer to 50-50, um, 50% some sort of commercial or recreational, and then 50% residential is a lot closer to what's going to really drive a more futuristic uh, and sustainable situation going forward. So that's the reality that drives this conversation about we just need more housing and a lot of conversions. But you're right. It it goes beyond that. What do people really want? And I'm really excited when you talk to mayors across the country, uh, many of them will speak about what they call the 15-minute initiative. Um, Some have even dropped it to 10 minutes or seven minutes. And that's this notion that everyone should be within a 10 to 15 minute walk of a park and like a pretty substantial park, you know, not just a a small pocket park, although those are a good start, but places that will have something for kids, places that will have something for working out, something for dogs and pets people really want. So that's been exciting. Um, There's also a notion that, Um, You know, it needs to have uh, many cities are bringing in, of course, or expanding educational opportunities or expanding the labs or expanding studio art spaces, um, you know, converting the old malls into food halls. So it's these experiences that also make both residents want to people want to move there and live there and also people want to come in from outside and have this really exciting experience for a day or for a weekend. Yeah. We're talking with Heather Long. She's a columnist who focuses on the economy for the Washington Post, also a member of that newspaper's editorial board. Uh, We're talking about downtowns, downtown Detroit, uh, downtowns across the country that are really feeling very different these days on the downside of the pandemic. The, the, The lack of daytime activity is, I think, the most noticeable change here in Detroit, but there are lots of other things as well that just don't seem the same. There is not as much activity in downtown Detroit now as there was, for instance, in the fall of 2019. The question is, what do we do about that? Uh, Do we rethink downtown Detroit and other downtowns fundamentally, open up zoning in those areas and welcome residences and and other kinds of things that would attract people to live in these places instead of just working and entertaining themselves. We, of course, want to hear from you, our listeners, while we have this conversation. Give us a call and let us know how you're feeling about 
downtown Detroit or another downtown here in Metro Detroit? Do you have concerns that uh, this lack of activity is permanent and that it will require us to really change the way we think about downtowns? What would you do to increase residential opportunities in a downtown? What would you do to make sure that those opportunities are uh, are diverse from an economic standpoint? In other words, how would you make sure that people could afford to choose to live in downtown Detroit? Right now, that's a pretty expensive proposition, even with all the work that we've done to expand residential options uh, downtown over the last 15 years. Uh, Give us a call and let us know what you think the first step would be in something like this. How do we get started really rethinking downtown Detroit? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we can work you into the conversation that way. Before we get to our listeners, Heather, I want to talk about affordability and how to kind of safeguard uh, that that idea as you go about these things. We've done a poor job of that here in Detroit over the last 15 years. It's pretty expensive to live downtown. Uh, There are some instances where uh, people were living before and now can't afford to live. There's less of that here because so much of it was vacant. But certainly what it's done is created um, it's created a, a neighborhood, I guess, of, of fairly upscale uh, people. And even more, it feels uninviting, I think, to people who don't have a lot of money. I think that's one of the fears people have about leaning more into this. So how do we protect against that? How do we make sure that doesn't happen? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's certainly a problem across the country. Uh, We just don't have enough housing supply in pretty much any city and suburb around the city. Uh, And you're right, D.C. has a warning sign on this, too. If you come to Washington, D.C., there's an area right um, by what's called Metro Centers, right, the heart of the city, Mm -hmm. just near the White House and the Treasury. And that is pretty much all luxury apartments and even luxury stores. We sort of joke as journalists, like who, who's going to all of these Armani <laughs> type shops? You know, we we almost never see anybody go in there. Um, clearly, somebody must be. But um, uh, so it's very much on the minds of. Uh, we had a chance to meet with a bunch of mayors from across the country when they were here in January for the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and almost everyone wanted to talk about this issue. So. It's not easy. I want to be upfront about that. But I will say I've also spent a lot of time in recent uh, months talking to developers. And I know they sometimes come off as greedy and these (laughs) sorts of things. But uh, most of them will tell you and they'll show you their spreadsheets that they can make affordable housing work in these transformations. That doesn't mean, you know, the city might want 15% affordable housing in a conversion and the developer would prefer more like 8%. But there's obviously a path there to make sure that there is some affordable housing going into any conversion to residential or conversion to mixed use. And that's an encouraging first step. Uh, I think the other two things that I've learned a lot about, one is in um, Atlanta has done this really effectively, as well as some of the cities in the South. Um, The more that when we talk about zoning, the more that you can allow buildings to go taller, the easier it is to add more units overall to help with your housing supply issues and, of course, to add more affordable units. And so you could see Atlanta, the city of Atlanta actually just purchased one of the tallest buildings in downtown, and they are converting multiple floors into affordable housing that'll be right at the heart of their city. Is it enough? No, but these are the kinds of projects that are starting to happen and and it's part of this big rethink in many many cities. Um, So I think you see you start to see things like this that give you a little bit of hope. The other one that comes up a lot, and we grappled with this recently in the Washington, D.C. context, is um, the fact that downtowns have historically been, I called it the golden goose earlier. You know, these commercial buildings have historically provided a lot of tax revenue yeah. dollars that have then been used for Uh, projects across the city and for helping with programs across the city. 
And so the other thing, though, that I think people have to keep in mind is, yes, you want affordable housing to be a part of the new downtown, but you also just want to make sure that those revenues, those property values do not plunge so much that the revenue is gone and you don't have as much revenue to invest across the city and to invest and keep your program strong uh, across the city. So I think that's the other factor a lot of people need to keep in mind is, um, you know, you, you want both of those goals to be achieved. I also feel like we've got to kind of rethink the way that we engage developers about downtown. Right now, we're, we're in the middle of a pretty big argument in the city about this new proposal by the Illich family to build a neighborhood, really, uh, in, in downtown Detroit, and, and the amount of tax subsidy that they're requiring, the, 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 the set-asides for, for things like affordable, uh, affordable housing. Um, there's no question that these these issues are not in the in the in the lead. It, it really is always about what the developer wants, uh, and we have in Detroit, you know, some pretty highly invested individuals in downtown. Dan Gilbert, uh, who owns Quicken Loans, uh, is at the front of that line, but but the Illiches are close behind. What they've created is not, I think, what we need from uh, you know, especially a housing standpoint, but also. Um, from a neighborhood standpoint. Uh, I've got a break in about a minute, but I want to get you to react to that, Heather. Um, Well, I'm not as familiar with the the Detroit context, but I will say from across the country, um, the two things that to keep in mind. Number one is a lot of the situations change in the past year with these mortgage rates Mm -hmm. going up a lot. I mean, it's just what you would have built a year ago when the mortgage rate was under 4% versus what you're going to build today when you're close to 7% um, is a lot different. And I, I think that unfortunately is a reality at the moment. That doesn't mean that you give out the whole house away or the block away or whatever the right (laughs) term is. But I do think we have to grapple a little bit differently with that reality. Um, Like I say, the other one, I I mean, I'm surprised to hear that in Detroit because I do think um, I've been pleasantly surprised in talking to developers from in many other cities who said, you know, like what I was saying earlier, they can make affordable housing work. You know, there's going to be a negotiation with City Hall about how much and what level and all this sort of thing. Um, you know, how, who's going to convert maybe a, an empty parking lot next door into the park, who's going to fund these things. But it's part of the conversation and it can, you know, it, it, it can happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really the, the city government's responsibility, right, to push to make sure uh, that's part of every every development project. Okay, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Heather Long of The Washington Post. We'll also start to get to you on the phones and on social. Frank and Livonia, Chris and Robert in Detroit, Sue and Lake Orion, you'll be up first. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter where we've got a number of comments that I'll want to add to the conversation as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. I'm really glad you've joined us. Our guest right now is Heather Long. She's a columnist and member of the Washington Post editorial board. Uh, They have been writing about the future of downtowns now that we're 
mostly through the pandemic, and we're noticing that uh, all the activity that we used to count on in places like downtown Detroit looks really different. Uh, is that an opportunity? Is it uh, a responsibility, really, to rethink downtown and expand our ideas about how downtowns uh, should should function, what role they should play in the overall city? Could they be more friendly to residential options? Could they be more like neighborhoods uh, where you have other things that people expect near their homes? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. If you want to join the conversation, we'd really love to hear from folks about how they're feeling about downtown Detroit. A little later in the program, we're going to talk with a group uh, that represents several downtown communities in Downriver Uh, here in Metro Detroit about what's going on in their neck of the woods. Uh, But right now, we'd love to hear from you about downtown Detroit. Uh, You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we can include you in the conversation that way. Let's start today with Chris in Detroit. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi. So one of the things I want to say is is that I think that we should stop looking at downtown as an idle, like as an idle but look at, look at cities like New York, and instead of always investing money downtown, invest money into other neighborhoods, so then that we're creating a more inclusive area, because the other neighborhoods have everything that we want. But, like, in Detroit, our, our, one of our biggest problems is that we have things like food deserts, and we have, and stop, and stop always investing the money right into the heart of the city, because we need, what we need in Detroit is we need economic development, we need new housing because we have not have new housing since nineteen since the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties. Yeah, yeah, Chris, I'm I'm glad you called and made that point because that is part of the the narrative and the argument here in Detroit a lot is how much attention downtown gets versus neighborhoods. Uh, and, and of course, uh, those of us who live in the city or and, and, and who grew up here know about the massive disinvestment. We live with it every day. That's, that's taken place in the city's neighborhoods. Uh, Heather, how do, we, how do we account for that in this, in this equation when we're thinking about downtowns? There's no city that can do without uh, the tax revenue that it gets from downtowns. Uh, but at the same time, you got to have a city that's that's pretty livable in in other ways and this is one of the ways that i think detroit is really different from washington in the sense that um there's a lot more density uh, in in Washington and and the neighborhoods there have not taken most of them at least the kind of hit from disinvestment uh, that we've had in Detroit. Detroit's a much larger space uh, geographically and it was harder to to keep everything up. But but this this tension between neighborhoods and downtown I think exists in in most communities. How should we be thinking about that? Yeah, it's a great point from the caller just made. Um, you know, in an ideal world, you'd be thinking about both, obviously. And I have to give a lot of credit to, I, for instance, you can go and read the city of San Francisco and the city of Washington, D.C. Both have released online, you know, 150 page roadmap to downtown, you know, the future and these sorts of plans or D.C.'s is called the comeback plan. And I have to give credit to these mayors that if you read through, yes, there's a lot in there about how to get more people to that downtown area and that stuff we were just talking about. But, you know, for instance, in the D.C. plan, it also includes just what the caller was addressing. You know, there is an actual plan on how to get more grocery stores into parts of the neighborhoods in D.C. And uh, similar to what we were talking about, about this goal of having everyone within a 10-minute or so walk to a park, there is a goal to make sure that everyone is within um, less than a mile to a grocery store. So could potentially walk and certainly have a short drive or bike ride to a grocery store. And a lot of that, give credit to these mayors, has come from mayors who've really engaged with some of the national as well as local uh, grocery chains, grocery store operators to in, to ensure that that, uh, that goal, for instance, can happen. So I think um, I, I've become a big believer that these mayors need to state 
clear goals. So I was, we were really applauding the DC mayor, for instance, when she said, you know, our target is 15,000 new residents downtown in the next five years, or the Atlanta mayor saying, you know, my target is this many new affordable homes in the next five years. Um, and similar with this grocery store, like we want everyone in the city to be within a mile or less of a grocery store. Yeah. You know, these types of goals put a number out there that people can start to say like is this a cheat you know is this happening or not and it helps the national chains whether it's developers or grocery stores or doctor's offices to kind of understand where the focus is where the top priorities of the city are yeah yeah uh, again chris really appreciate the call uh and and the comments let's go next to frank and livonia frank what's on your mind Hey, good morning, Stephen. Um, you know, this is something uh, that has been really near and dear to my heart for many years is uh, affordable housing and how that interacts with transit. And, you know, I think one of the, the fundamental things is that is, is that we have it backwards. Uh, jobs uh, do not attract housing, uh, you know, or, or I'm sorry, the jobs attract the housing. The housing does not attract the jobs. And so, you know, out here in Livonia, and you can go out to 23 and and, uh, you know, out there by Van Dyke and stuff. I mean, these huge industrial parks, but they're, you know, nobody can afford. Those were the good manufacturing jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, here in Detroit, uh, where they need affordable housing, and I'd also say define what is, you know, what income level is affordable. I'd have to say for a family of four, if you're not making $80,000, either singly or in a combined income, you know, you're going to need affordable housing. That's, you know, it's not poor people we're talking about. These are people making good wages. But along the edges of Detroit, Telegraph and 8 Mile, there's, there's buku jobs out here in the suburbs. People can't get to them if they have to make two transfers from the sure. city bus to the, you know. And so, you know, where they need to make affordable housing is, is out here. They need zoning changes in the suburbs in these industrial parks. Hmm. Uh, you know, we can build... It, you know, there's plenty of room in these industrial parks to build housing in there where people can be close to their job, where they wouldn't need to have two cars. Yeah. Maybe might be able to get by with one car. Uh, Frank, I, you know, I, I, I love the call and I love this idea, although I will, will say that uh, Mayor Mike Duggan here in Detroit, who's, who's actually uh, grew up in Livonia but is now the mayor of Detroit, would probably – not be enthusiastic about <laughs> about what you're talking about, but it is really important. The idea of where jobs are, where jobs are growing, and where we make uh, affordable housing available, and how we build transit. I, I think every city is 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 struggling with some version of. Uh, those tensions right now. We're not doing really well with it here in Detroit, mostly because uh, we don't have adequate transit. And, and especially if you have to get from Detroit, for instance, to the suburbs for work, uh, it, it's just very, very difficult. Uh, but but Heather, I wonder how this idea of transforming uh, downtowns into more appealing residential centers affects the idea of or, or is affected by the fact that jobs are, in many cases, leaving big cities and, and going to the suburbs. Exactly. That's one of the reasons you're trying to get more residential. And um, it's interesting what the caller said. I mean, there is some hope that if, as there are more people who are living again in some of these downtown hubs, that more businesses will come. And I would actually call it the great war for young people is going on between mm -hmm. cities right now. Um, if you look during the pandemic, it was a lot of people in their 20s and early 30s, people maybe who didn't have kids yet, who were still single or just with one partner, and and they maybe moved back with, with relatives or friends to save some money. They moved out of cities in mass. And right now, if you actually look through a lot of the cities that have put out these comeback plans, there's literally an entire section about how to woo 20 and 30 year olds back to the cities. <laughs> um, and but, you know, you think about it, you want these people to come and then you're hoping that they're going to stay, that they're going to be part of your 
next 30 years of, of your city. And so, um, you know, I think that is part of the equation that a lot of these mayors and, and city council members are grappling with is uh, how do we get these future generations excited, whether about being in Detroit or Atlanta or DC or San Francisco or wherever, and hopefully we'll want to stay and want to um, ultimately invest or at least stay in the area. So, um, so that I do think is a little bit different than maybe the caller said. I do think that it, cities that win that race for young people mm-hmm. uh, have a good chance of luring companies because companies want to be around that future workforce. They want to be around uh, that that vibrancy, that young vibrancy. So um, there's a little bit of that going on. I do think transit is super fascinating. Again, there is no silver bullet. But it's there's a huge debate going on across the country and actually smaller cities, I think, have an advantage here to solve these problems in the sense that you look at a place like Richmond has been one of the forefront of experimenting with free bus systems. Mm-hmm. So it started with one of their lines that ran kind of through the heart of um, downtown and into the suburbs along one of their major thoroughfares. And that was so successful that they expanded it citywide for all buses. And it they have seen a huge boost in just what the caller was saying and people able to get to jobs, to schools, to universities that um, they the city is now pledged to keep that going. And a lot of other cities are eyeing that program and starting to experiment in their cities with some form of free busing. And of course, buses are a little bit easier to do than to build a metro line or to build a you know a tram line or something that just takes a lot more infrastructure. So this um, we're kind of back to buses, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Frank, I, 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 again, really appreciate the call and the comments. Uh, let's go to Roger, who is listening in Falls Church, Virginia, a suburb of... Uh, of D.C. Uh, Roger, go ahead. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. Uh, I listened to your program. I lived in Michigan in the 70s, and I'm living outside Washington, D.C. Uh, there was a book here that was given to me by my daughter-in-law's father, who was the author, Grand Central Terminal, Railroads Engineering and Architecture in New York City. It's about the building of the railroads in New York and the transit out to the suburbs. Why did we do that? So that people could move outside the teeming city of New York that was dirty, smelly, and crammed with immigrants. Uh, we don't do that anymore. Our, our commerce isn't dirty and smelly. <clears throat> uh, you don't have to move away from it. So what happens is that people are going to want to move closer to their jobs. And, and Heather knows this. I mean, uh, Tyson's Corner is downtown Fairfax County. Right. And uh, uh, there's a nice neighborhood there right next to it, Mosaic. It's very upscale, residential, and so people can live closer to their jobs. This is very important in an era of climate change, and we don't have to uh, shove people by race into the ghetto anymore. We're willing to live amongst each other. It lowers transportation costs. You don't have two-hour commutes anymore. Uh, This is an inexorable force that is going to just overwhelm us. So Roger, yeah. are you arguing that that we we should be creating downtowns Downtown. dense? Yeah. Plural. In lots of different places, right? Lots of different places yeah. people can uh, don't have to Now what this does like in Washington DC when they surrendered their highway funds to build the metro rail, it's it it goes downtown and out. That's why, you know, people won't use it as much. Oh, I can live in Springfield and work in Springfield. Uh, I have a uh, a half hour commute, right, uh, Roger? So it changes the whole pattern of your transit. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate the the call and the comments, Heather. I wonder what you make of his argument here that that we need to be creating lots of downtowns and not worrying uh, as much just about one, like Washington or Detroit. I, I think that's a good point, and it's certainly part of the national conversation. I was just trying to pull up the data, for instance. I have the data just for the D.C. area, and I'm trying to look at this. Basically, what I'm trying to say is 
the same problems we've been talking about in the heart of downtowns do exist in these suburban areas mm -hmm. that the caller was mentioning, for instance. So downtown DC, let's say, is about 50% back. But if you look, there's a me metric for suburban Maryland that I have and for Northern Virginia, where he was calling from. And guess what? Those major office buildings, many complexes are also only about 50% filled. Hmm. So, so, you know, it's more problem. noticeable. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's more noticeable when you walk around downtown D.C. because you're like in a city and you're expecting, you know, the world of five or ten years ago, you know, where it was everybody was out and about. Um, then perhaps it is when you're walking around a suburban office park. Um, but it's the same problems and the same situations that are being grappled with in many of these suburban and areas, the suburban areas around the country. As well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Roger, I really appreciate the call and the fact that you're still listening to us out there in, uh, in Falls Church. Let's go next to Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen, and good morning, Heather. Um, I'm really glad Roger called in, actually, because he kind of echoed an idea I've had for quite a while, which I call local downtowns. And when you look at uh, Detroit and our mile road system, you know, seven mile all the way down to Joy Road, for example, we have, you know, very long commercial corridors that are mostly empty and I don't believe are going to come back. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be a good idea to kind of reexamine how we could repurpose those instead of long strings of commercial activity balled up in one area. But my main point or comment was that Heather made a great uh, point earlier about a 24-hour city. Detroit is kind of pop-marked with dead zones, and I think we would do well to, you know, kind of make an intentional effort at placemaking, which I haven't really seen from the city. And as a matter of affordability, um, I've been trumpeting this for a long time, but Detroit, or rather North Dakota, is the only state in the union which has its own commercial bank. Mm -hmm. And I think Detroit might want to examine that model because if we have a population which is very similar to the state of North Dakota, there's no reason why a, a city-owned bank could not be providing that bridge financing that developers constantly complain about in Detroit. You know, Detroit is supposedly a difficult market to get lending in. It is. Uh, it can be very expensive and time-consuming, but if the city could step in and do that from a commercial perspective and not be reliant on grants or federal funding, then I think we could start to see a lot faster pace on these sorts of developments, that, and that could also bring the cost down. You know, Robert, you're not wrong about that in theory. I guess my my worry is that, you know, the capitalization of that is would be our challenge here. I mean, this is a city that was literally bankrupt uh, a decade ago, owed uh, $18 billion or somewhere on in, in, in that range, and was not uh, able to 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 was not going to be even be able to make payroll uh, unless we we reorganized that that um, I I don't know where we would get the capital to to start a bank that would uh, that would make up some of those gaps. There are lots of uh, smaller institutions in the city that are trying to step into those gaps right now. It is difficult, uh, and again, it's a question of of where the capital comes from. But the idea that we need to finance these things better and more quickly, especially in downtown, but also in other commercial quarters is something that I think uh, we ought to be really thinking about. And it is, again, something that's not unique to Detroit. There are lots of cities uh, that have that challenge. Heather, I'll, I'll give you a chance to respond as well. Yeah, it's two excellent points that DeCaller made. Um, I, I, in urban planning, they talk a lot about this concept of nodes, which is similar to what he was speaking about. That um, you you know, there's different clusters basically throughout throughout cities, and you're trying to transform. Um, you know, it's basically the old like 10 to 20 percent rule. If you can sort of start to transform with some early conversions of office buildings or whatnot to make, whether it's converting to residential or converting an old mall, shopping mall into a food hall, something that that really changes the character of the neighborhood, it then starts, you know, your hope is that then private investors want to come in and, and grocery stores and daycares and all this other infrastructure just naturally wants to come in to be part of that new transformed place. 
Um, so I think that's a lot of the smart thinking that I'm seeing across the country. You can actually see it in the plans that some cities are putting out where they're really focused on, you know, reviving like that. So in some cases down to certain street corners, they talk about, you know, this is our target, this street corner, because if we can transform this intersection, we think the benefits will just build on themselves um, in the, the next few blocks around that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Heather, it was really great to have you here on Detroit Today to talk about uh, downtowns and the future of downtowns. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Look forward to visiting Detroit again. Yes. Come back. We're going to take uh, another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to keep talking about cities. But uh, we're going to talk a little about Downriver and some districts there that are actually revitalizing themselves. We'll also continue with you on the phones and on Twitter. 313-577-1019 is the number. Call and tell us if you live in another downtown area here in Metro Detroit. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. Thanks for joining. We've been talking about riverfronts, how to increase residential units along Detroit's riverfront, and how other cities are doing some similar things. Interestingly, there are other riverfronts and towns here in Metro Detroit that are attempting to do the same thing. One of those communities includes the Down River section of Metro Detroit. It's a collection of 18 cities and townships just south of us here in Detroit. And it has been trying to deindustrialize and attract more small businesses and people to its cities and to develop their riverfronts. So how's that been going? And what are the changes that are happening in Downriver to make the area a more fun, exciting, and economically appealing place to live. To talk about all of this, we've got Sue Trussell with us. She is the director of the Brownstown Downtown Development Authority and co-chair of Destination Downriver, which is working to rebrand that area. Sue, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Great uh, to be here. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, how's Downriver been changing over the past few years? How are its downtowns changing and how has it been attracting new businesses? Well, Destination Downriver, we've been working hard to transform um, the perception of what Downriver has been for a very long time. We like to say we were going from the Rust Belt to the Green Belt. I've lived here all my life, and um, we used to be a joke, you know, the Downriver area. And now it's a, a passion of ours to, to change that perception. So we've got together with the 18 communities downriver and we want to let everybody know what a great place it is to to be here. So talk about the ways in which you are experimenting with downtowns to make them more amenable to residents and, and density. One of the interesting things to me about downriver is that it is uh, a place that was so heavily industrial and that's different mm -hmm. from downtown Detroit, for instance. So, so how do you create more of a sense of a downtown and, and then of course get residents and businesses excited about being there? I think um, just to bring awareness to the area and so many of the communities now are doing such a good job of having retail downtown, small businesses and restaurants that people just want to come to. They want to be able to walk somewhere and just getting those entrepreneurs to come here to see what a great place it is to have a business. You can live in the same town that your business is. That seems to be happening a lot down here. So I think awareness is a, a big part of it, but also um, building those businesses that can stay in a downtown where people want to you know, go to their stores or go to their restaurants. Yeah. The population is also changing quite a bit in down in, in down river. It's uh, becoming more Latino, more Arab, more African-American. Yep. Talk about uh, the, the way in which down river is a more inclusive and safer place uh, for everybody. Yeah. yeah, I think it's um, 
part of it is the affordability to be able to come and start a business. Lincoln Park is a great example of that. Um, there are many storefronts in their downtown area, and they're enticing the Hispanic community to come, and a lot of businesses have started there, and I think that's been a, a big plus so other people can see that it's a more economical place to start a business, and then there's the community there to support them. They have uh, been having Cinco de Mayo festivals, and the the community as a whole has really embraced the Hispanic community there, and it's great to see. There's a company called um, Detroit Salsa Company that started in Lincoln Park. They came up with, well, they had a generational, four-generational salsa recipe and decided to get a storefront going in Lincoln Park, and now they're um, in many different uh, stores in the area and just booming. And it was just one of the the young sons that started it, an MSU uh, student. He decided to to take a chance, and the community was embracing to him. So it's great to see that story. Yeah. What what other kinds of jobs and economic opportunities do you feel like are fueling this, this new interest uh, in Downriver cities and their downtowns? I really think it's the, the entrepreneurs that are coming here. Um, Flat Rock is another example, and, and Brownstown, too. Um, we just in, embrace, and we're as excited as they are to start a business. We have a pizzeria here in Brownstown that I was just visiting yesterday, and um, the owners are just so grateful that we're happy for them, and I love to see that. It's Francesca's uh, Brick Oven Pizza here in Brownstown. They've just, a husband and wife decided to start a, you know, a company and put their, they have young kids, and they just put everything into this business, and they're thriving, and we want to see them thrive, too, and I think Flat Rock's done the same thing. The communities are realizing through their building ordinances and their zoning that they need to embrace um, the the families and the, the small businesses to make them um, successful in their downtown. So I think that that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Sue Trussell, director of the Brownstown Downtown Development Authority and co-chair of Destination Downriver. Thanks so much for being here with us on Detroit Today, and uh, good luck to you in those Downriver communities. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about Wayne County Executive Warren Evans and his state of the county speech, all the changes that are happening in this area of Southeast Michigan. Also, if you like this show and enjoy listening, remember to share it with your friends and your neighbors and your relatives, anyone you think would enjoy it. You can find us at WDET.org or on our Detroit Today podcast, which you can download any place you get podcasts. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.